Okay, so we're going to start in Psalm 77. Psalm 77, if you don't have a Bible, this one will be on the screen. Let me just read it, and, and, and to be honest, I can't remember. I'm going to stop in after verse 15, but I think we're going to come back to 16 through 20 later. But I'm going to read 1 through 15, and I think that's maybe as far as the PowerPoint goes as well. But let's read this scripture together, and uh, then we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump right in to the message. Psalm 77 says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, here in this room are people who know exactly how it feels to be where the psalmist is in Psalm 77. Here in this room today are some folks who are there right now who wonder if your favor will ever return, who wonder if they'll ever experience your joy and your pleasure again, who wonder if perhaps God has forgotten to be good to them. The psalmist knows all too well how that feels. And so you inspired him by your Holy Spirit to write these words, and these words, they, they resonate with us, and they also instruct us. And so today, I pray that everyone in this room, everyone hearing this message by uh, electronic media would, would hear your words to us today on how we are, by your grace, able to survive suffering how we are by your grace able to hope in the midst of our darkest despair. For you are a good and praiseworthy God. So give us ears to hear this morning. In Jesus' name I ask for this. Amen. You know, when soldiers are preparing to go into battle, they go through very strict training. Training that is designed to mold their instincts so that when they find themselves in the midst of the battle, 
so that when they find themselves in a situation where bullets are, are flying and grown men are screaming, they can always revert back to and rely on their training. If their training was effective, they will be minimally phased, at least in the moment, by what's going on around them, and they will know how to respond in the best possible way. That's how we train our soldiers. We, we prepare them for battle. Well, life has a way of throwing us into the middle of a lot of situations that we've never prepared for, that we have minimal training for. And bullets start to fly and suffering starts to happen in our lives and, and we find ourselves fumbling to find some, some place to, to put our feet on solid ground. I remember when, when Reagan was six days old in the emergency room with uncontrollable seizures and they were doing things in, a, in an attempt to stop the seizures that my daughter was having that I never imagined anyone would do to a six-day-old baby. Things that they asked us to step out of the room so they could do. And I remember standing outside of that emergency room. Bullets were flying. Everything was spinning. Nothing in my world seemed stable in that moment. Nothing in my world had pre prepared me to experience what I was experiencing, and I was, I was wondering what God was doing. Suffering hits all of us at some point in our lives. The good news is, is that the Bible, and, 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 and more importantly, God himself is never surprised when this happens. As much as suffering may catch us off guard, God always knew it was coming. And so there are some things that we can do to train. There are some things that we can do to prepare. And so today I wanna, I wanna share with you some of the things that I see in scripture that help us prepare to survive suffering. In the book of Psalms, suffering is a common theme. You know, we've been going through this series where uh, we're having several of the pastors preach sermons and we're each picking different Psalms that we want to share. And, and Psalm 77 immediately came to my mind when I heard I was going to be preaching from Psalms. It immediately came to mind. I, I thought of Psalm 77 because Psalm 77 for the last 15 years of my life has stuck in my brain and will not go away. I don't know when I read this psalm for the first time, but I know exactly when I felt it for the first time. You see, the majority of the suffering in my life has come to me in two different ways. Now, I'm not making any attempt to compare my suffering to yours. I'm not making any attempt to, to elevate my suffering in, in, in some way that would make it seem like I know more about suffering than you. I'm, I'm not in that competition with you. Many of you have suffered in far greater ways than I ever have. What I want to do is share with you my experience. What I want to do with, is share with you how God has ministered to me when I have suffered in life. And that suffering has come to me in two main ways. The, the one is what I've already mentioned, that my daughter was born with a brain injury. 
a brain injury that has left her today uh, at eight years old, was still with significant disabilities, with the diagnoses of cerebral palsy and autism, uh, a, a, an, an injury that has impacted our family deeply. But the greater dose of suffering in my life has come through anxiety. When I was eight, nine years old, I began having extreme panic attacks. Panic attacks where, where, where fear and terror would literally come on me out of the blue and leave me screaming in fear at eight, nine years old. I've gone through seasons of life where those anxiety attacks have come and gone. Most, mostly they've, they've come, sometimes they've gone. But I remember when I, was, when I was a junior in college, I was in Bible college, I was preparing for ministry, I was, I was enjoying my relationship with the Lord. I hadn't had a panic attack in several years. Uh, a season of, of peace that I have not enjoyed since, not to, to that length. And out of the blue came these panic attacks. And I was in my dorm room one day, and they just hit. And I began, I began to become in, incredibly afraid, so much so that I, I wanted to run, but there was nowhere to run. And I started... I started this, this, this season of anxiety where I actually ended up leaving uh, school. It was, this, this came on me at the end of one of my semesters. And so I actually left a few days early to come home and to get under the care of my doctor. And I actually had to go on medicine for a season to help these panic attacks subside. I've done that a couple of times. I'm not currently on any medications. haven't been for, for several years. But it's come and it's gone, and, and when it comes, it comes hard. And I remember when I was in college and that was happening, at one point I opened my Bible and I read Psalm 77. And when I came to these words, it hit me in such a way, my battery's gone. Would you replace my battery, please? Check one. Okay, we're good. All right, new batteries. Good thing. <laughs> I read Psalm 77, and I, heard, I read these words. And up to this point, I had been a Christian for probably about six years. And, you know, just like every Christian journey, ups and downs and, and all that. But, man, I was, I was enjoying the Lord a lot. But when anxiety hit me in this way, I, I was... I was afraid of who he was and of what he might be doing. And I read these words in Psalm 77, verse 3. When I remember God, I moan. If you ever get to a place in your relationship with God where the thought of him 
causes you pain. That's suffering. That's when you know you are in the midst of suffering. And I read those words and and, and I thought, that's exactly how I feel right now. I didn't know that was in the Bible. I didn't know that other people felt the way I was feeling. When When I remember him, I moan. And so let's let's look again at what Asaph says in Psalm 77. Let me read the first first nine verses again. He says, I cry aloud to God. Listen to the suffering in this man's life. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. These are the questions that he asks. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? When those are the questions you are asking about God, you are suffering. When Mentally and emotionally, you are at the point where you're saying, what is this it? Is this how it ends? Is this how far God has brought me and he will take me no further? Have I come to the end of his grace and his mercy and his compassion? Will I now suffer the rest of the days of my life? That's suffering. I want to make two points from Psalm 77, and these are both on your outline. And then I want to make three more points that I'm going to ask you to write down. And we're going to look at some other scripture that I think complement very well the first two points that I want to make today. So if you have your map, go ahead and get that out. We're going to, we're going to fill in some blanks together. The first one is this. Suffering often blinds us to what God is doing. It often blinds us to what God is doing. Now, let me say this once, and then I'm not going to say this again and again the rest of the sermon like I might be tempted to. Suffering often blinds us. It certainly doesn't always blind us. Some of the greatest seasons of joy in the Lord in my life have been during times of suffering. Sometimes suffering comes with it with an inexplicable grace where God just allows you to experience his kindness and his presence in your life. That happens too, okay? So I'm I'm making a balancing statement here. But I want to talk about when that isn't happening. I want to talk about when suffering blinds us to what God is doing, which is often the case. My guess is that you have already experienced this. If you haven't, lean in and pay close attention and take good notes today, particularly of the scriptural references, because if this has not already been your experience in life, it surely will one day. 
Suffering often blinds us to what God is doing. It's, it's of great comfort to me to know that I am not the only one who has experienced this. Asaph, the psalmist, felt it. He said, what happened to God? <laughs> I remember what he used to be like. I remember how he used to do great things. I remember how God used to pour out favor and blessing and overwhelm us with his kindness. I remember that. Where's he at now? C.S. Lewis probably the greatest Christian apologist of the 20th century. I have no, I am not in a position to make that judgment, but I just did. <laughs> He's that good, okay? C.S. Lewis wrote some of the best Christian material to come out of the 20th century, period. C.S. Lewis was an, was an atheist, perhaps an agnostic, uh, into his adult life. Uh, he did not believe in God. He did not believe the claims of Christianity. And at one point was radically converted to faith in Christ and went on to become one of the greatest Christian apologists of modern times. Apologist means he argued for faith in Christ. So he did a complete 180. He went from not believing to devoting himself and, and the platform that God had given him, his writing um, and, and his, his work in the college that he was at, to convincing people of God's existence and of the claims of Christianity. And he did so with unbelievable effectiveness. Then his wife died of cancer. And he wrote a book that you should read at some point in your life. I don't know when. <laughs> I don't know when to suggest such a book as, as appropriate. Where he journals his experience through that. It's called A Grief Observed. And Lewis, for a period of time, loses faith. His suffering blinds him to what God is doing. Here's the guy who was known at, at the time, and, and he, he lived uh, around the time of World War II. Here was a guy who, who was known at the time as one of the greatest apologists for Christianity. And a little bit of pain causes him to go, what happened to God? Where's he at now? That's a great comfort to me. Because it happens to all of us at one point or another. At least to most of us. Maybe God will spare you of this, but for those of us who are not spared of this type of emotional turmoil, we need to know how to respond. And the first thing I want you to know is that this is part of the normal Christian experience. It doesn't mean that what you believed before was false. It doesn't mean that God has not truly saved you. It doesn't mean that God's favor is not going to return and that you won't enjoy him again. It means a lot of things, but chiefly, it, it, you need to know that's just normal. Suffering often blinds us to what God is doing. That's a reality. We can't see past our pain. Our pain becomes blinders in our lives that don't allow us to see who God is and what he is doing. But Psalm 77 doesn't stop there. For me, when, I, when, when, when it hit me when I was in college, I stopped right there. That was all I could see. I just thought, man, this is it. This is where I'm at. 
I don't even want to think about God right now because it's such a sore subject in my, my mind. It's such, a, it's such an open wound right now. I can't even begin to process this theologically. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn. But Asaph knew exactly what to do. Look at verses 10 through 15. He says, then I said, I will appeal to this. So here's his response. Here's how he's going to respond to suffering. I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Asaph, when he couldn't see what God was doing, made a very important decision. One that you and I must make when suffering blinds us to what God is doing. He did something very important. He reminded himself of what he knew about God from before. He made the conscious effort to remember the great things that God had done. And this, guys, is the key to surviving suffering. The next uh, fill in the blanks on the map. When this happens, that's a reference back to the first point, when suffering blinds you to what God is doing, when that happens, we need to remind ourselves of who he is and of what he has already done. When this happens, we need to remind ourselves of who he is and of what he has already done. When, when I was a young Christian, my pastor said something. This was, I was probably 17, 18 years old. My pastor said something one Sunday that I never forgot. He said, don't forget in the night what you have learned during the day. And I never forgot that. I've forgotten to apply it at times, but I've never forgotten that truth. And, and there's some 16, 17, 18-year-olds in this room. Write that down and remember that. Don't forget when it gets dark in your life. That's the night. Don't forget in the night what you have learned in the day, namely what God has taught you about himself and about how he works. Because if you can remember what he's like and how he works, it will get you through some very dark times in your life. And so we need to remind ourselves of who he is and of, of what he has done already. And that's what, exactly what Asaph does. Let me read. I don't think this is on the PowerPoint. If it is, you can put it up. But the rest of that passage Verses 16 through 20, he says, when the water saw, you know what he does? Remember what he said? Okay, so part one of Psalm 77, verses one through nine. Part one is, I don't see God at work. I don't see him. He's, it's dark and he seems nowhere to be found. Part two is, okay, then here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna remember what he's done in the past. I'm gonna remember in the night what I learned in the day. So then part three, he does that very thing. Now what he does may or may not be super meaningful to us, but what he does is he remembers a time when God made a way where there seemed to be no way. 
And he goes back to the Israelites coming up out of Egypt. And if you know the story, the Israelites come up out of Egypt. God miraculously delivers them from Pharaoh and the Egyptian army and the oppression and slavery that they faced in Egypt. And he leads them out into the desert and he brings them to the Red Sea. And so now you've got a couple million people in the desert with a sea in front of them and the Egyptian army coming behind them. Every one of them had to be thinking, this is it. In fact, many of them expressed that with words. And they began to grumble and they say, did God bring us up out of Egypt only to kill us in the desert? They thought that was it. But we know the rest of the story, God miraculously parts the Red Sea so that the, the Israelites go across and when the Egyptians try to follow, the waters come over the Egyptian army and drowns them all out. So God does this miraculous thing in the midst of this great, this great trouble that the people of Israel faced where in front of them is an immovable object and behind them is an army of, of Egyptians who wants to kill them. He says, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your, light, your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So Asaph says, I can't see God right now, but I'm gonna remember a time when he did something just as miraculous as what I need him to do right now. When he made a way where there seemed to be no way, when he did something that was unthinkable to deliver his people out of the trouble that they faced. So let me review the two points. Suffering often blinds us to what God is doing. When this happens, we need to remind ourselves of who he is and of what he has already done. Okay, so let's do that together this morning. I want to walk you through a couple of scriptural passages that have been particularly helpful to me as I've had to learn how to survive the suffering of my life. And these didn't come to me all at once. It's not as if I sat down with my Bible and I opened it up and I said, God, what does your word say about suffering? And he just walked me through these passages. No, at different seasons in my life, through different periods of suffering, each of these passages have become very meaningful to me. And I realized recently as I was preparing to speak on another occasion that that God has given me some pieces of the puzzle that are, are starting to come together that are starting to form something very helpful to me when I'm going through suffering. And so I want you to, to, if possible, benefit from that this morning as I outline for, for you some things that I see in Scripture that I find to be very helpful and to be right in line with what Asaph teaches us to do. So you're going to have to write the rest of any, anything else. Any of these scriptural references aren't going to be on the, the screen Um, the passages aren't aren't, going to show up. This is where I I want you to use your Bible. And so if you have a Bible, be ready. We're going to start in in the book of Job, which if you open your Bible about halfway, you're probably around Psalms or Proverbs. Just go back a little bit, and Job is right before the book of Psalms. So we're going to look at Job. 
very well-known story. Let me try to save us some time this morning and just summarize the story. Job lost everything. Job had a lot of stuff. He had a lot of kids. He had a, he had a wife. Uh, he, had a, he had great material possessions. And he lost almost everything. He lost everything except for his wife. He lost his kids. He lost a lot of his material possessions. He lost his health. And he began, he began to wrestle with what you and I ultimately have to deal with in our own ways in our lives. What in the world is God doing when we suffer? Job begins to wrestle with this. His friends offer all kinds of unhelpful advice. His friends are convinced he must be in sin. And so they're telling him, I mean, if you just repent of whatever sin you've been hiding from us, God would, God would relent. And Job insists. In fact, God vouches for Job in the beginning of the book that he's innocent. And so that's where the term, maybe you've heard the term, term Job's comforters. Those are people who offer a lot of unhelpful advice when you are in a time of need. Job's comforters. That comes from this story in the Bible where Job's friends just heap on him all kinds of unhelpful advice and, and just salt into the wound of Job's life. Job does everything that he knows how to to remain faithful to God. In fact, at one point he was encouraged just to curse God and die. Why don't you just get it over with, Job? You're miserable. Your, your life is ruins. Let's just get this thing over with. Curse God and die. And Job says, I won't curse God. Very famous words. Uh, when God, remember, remember we sing this song. I'm trying to think of, of, of the name of the song. Um, and, and the words are just failing me, so I'll, I'll just move on. Maybe it'll come back to me later. But Job ref refuses to curse God in the midst of his suffering. But he eventually begins to, to ask for the same thing. Something maybe you've asked for. He begins to ask for an audience with God. Finally, Job has had enough. He says, I can't, I can't take it anymore. God has got to explain to me what's happening here. And he gets what he asks for, sort of. In Job 38, so 38 chapters into this book, in Job 38, God finally shows up to answer Job. And I love God's response. It's not the response that Job wanted. It's not the response that I ever would want when I'm suffering. But as I've stepped back and looked at it, I see the beauty in it. So here's this man, he's lost everything, he's experiencing great suffering, his health is gone, his kids are gone, his possessions are gone, and he wants God to explain this to him. And what does God say? Let's, let's look at Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, dressed for action like a man? I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Where were you when I laid... Oh, I'm sorry. I lost my place. Or who stretched the line upon it? Verse 6. On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? 
when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut up the sea with doors when it bursts out of the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. And it goes on and on. For the sake of time, I won't, I won't read it. But for several chapters, God just completely undresses Job and begins to, begins to question him. Now, when you're suffering and you're looking for an explanation from God, you're looking for a little compassion. I think what Job wanted was God to, to show up and put his arm around him, say, Job, buddy, it's going to be all right. I'm here for you. I know, I know you haven't sinned. I know you're a great man. And, and, and here's what I'm doing. Let me show you how this is all going to work out in the end. Instead, God questions him. He calls him out on the carpet. Dress for action like a man. Those are words you don't want to hear from God. But then, when we step back and we look answer, what is God really saying? What is God really trying to communicate to Job? Let me show you Job's response. In, ver in chapter 40, verses 4 and 5, so, so from 38 th all the way through chapter 39, God just, he just nailing Job. He's just one thing after another. He's questioning him, and he's asking him about all these things that Job obviously has no idea about. Job can't even begin to comprehend how God laid out the universe, how God laid the foundation of the world. This is a great mystery to Job. He has no knowledge to speak of in this area. And so in chapter 40, verses 4 and 5, this is Job's response. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job basically says, oops, <laughs> you're right. Who, who am I to question you? And God, listen, in his love and compassion for Job and for you and I, lays into him again. And for the next two chapters, he goes on and on again. He says it again, dress for action, verse 7 of chapter 40. Like a man, I will question you and, make, and you make it known to me. I've got some questions for you, Job. You tell me about these things. Will you even put me in the wrong he says, verse 10, adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. 
Verse 15, behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength in his loins. And he talks about, I created all these things. I made the beasts of this world. I created the universe. I'm the one who commands the snow. I'm the one who tells the waves of the ocean, this is how far you come, no further. Job says in chapter 42, 1 through 6, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He's quoting God. Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make known to me. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And then the book of Job ends. God eventually restores Job, double what he had before. He gives him a bunch of new kids and a bunch of new stuff and all kinds of cool things. Job wanted compassion, and God gave it to him, but in the unlikely form that we read about in chapters 38 through 41, God assures Job of the thing that he really needed to know more than anything else. More than how this was going to work out in the end, Job needed to know that God could work it out in the end. More than than why God was doing this to him, Job needed to know that God was bigger than his problems. And so God, out of great compassion and love for Job, describes to him the type of God he is. Sometimes answers don't come the way we want them to. They come the way we need them to. Sometimes you've got to say to your kids, because I said so. Now, not all the time, and oftentimes we use that because we're, we're, being, we're being lazy. We don't want to take the time to explain to them. But there, there are things that I know that my kids can't possibly comprehend yet, and I just have to say, because I said so. And they need to know that I'm big enough and that I am capable enough to be looking out for what is right and best for them. How much more so God? God's saying, if, Job, if you could understand a fraction of what I understand, if you had any clue how I made the beasts of the earth, if you even could begin to comprehend how I laid the foundations of this world, if your tiny little brain could even, even begin to, to understand the stars that I have placed in the sky, then I could, I could tell you why I'm doing this. But you can't. And so you just got to trust me and know that I'm big enough and that I'm strong enough and that I'm capable enough that I've got this in my hands. That the suffering that you can't get your head around is part of my plan for your good. 
And so the next thing I want you to write down, I want to give you three more things to write down. One is God is big enough for our suffering. He's big enough. He's got this. He can handle this. He understands what we're going through better than we do, and he's got a plan. Job would eventually look back and see God's good plan. But for now, God says, Job, I'm, I'm big enough. I, I got this. It's, it's because I said so. That's why you're going through this. You know, we love, we love to watch, I love to watch TV shows where there's a main character who has this unrealistic way of making everything work out for good in the end. Those shows where, where you're like, I don't know how they're going to put this thing back together. This thing's a mess. Like the plot is just gone blah, and, and everything's all messed up. But you've seen the show enough times that you know the main character is going to figure it out in the end. You know the main character is going to pull all this back together, solve all the problems, and make everything okay in the end. Now that's fictional. And it's often very unrealistic. In real life, it would never work. We don't have that type, we don't have those kinds of superheroes in the human race. But God does that. God does that all the time. He takes things like the, the, the Israelites up against the Red Sea with the Egyptian army behind them. And everybody, if that's a TV show, we're going, dead, they're done, that's it. There's no way out. They, can't, they don't even have weapons. They've never been trained to fight the Egyptian army Perhaps the most well-trained army on the earth at that time is coming for them, and they have nowhere to go. And God says, you guys go ahead and cross. That's the kind of God that Job encountered. And when he saw that, he said, you know, I almost didn't bring it up, God. (laughs) I almost didn't say anything. You're right. I knew I I shouldn't have asked. I I should have just trusted that you had this. And that's exactly what he does in the end. So that's one piece. That's the piece that, that probably isn't what you want to hear when you're hurting. But isn't it good to know that? Isn't it good to know, man, I'm, I'm just not going to feel good right now. But I think God's got this all figured out. Let me give you two more. John chapter 9. We're going to go to the New Testament. John chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Many of you will be familiar with this story. Some of you, this may be new. Either way, let's, let's look at John chapter 9 together. This is talking about Jesus. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Of course, that's their, their mentality. Somebody must have sinned that this man was born blind. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Let me just briefly state this point. God uses our suffering, write this down if you're taking notes, God uses our suffering for his 
glory. He uses it for his glory. There's a guy who's his whole life, he's been blind. His disciple, Jesus' his disciples say, man, what's going on? Who sinned? Who did something wrong that this man is suffering this way? Jesus says, it wasn't that anybody sinned. This happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So that everybody here can see who I am. And so he performs this miracle and he heals this man. And God uses our suffering for his glory. And I could go on and on about examples both from Scripture and about from my life and and our lives about how that has happened, but let me just add that piece to the puzzle. So we have a God who is big enough. Now we have a God who uses our suffering for his glory. Now I want to look at Romans 8, verse 28. Turn to Romans 8. It may or may not be satisfying to you that God uses your suffering for his glory. The beauty of who our God is, is that his glory and our good are tied to one another. That as believers, God does nothing that is for his glory alone and not for your good. And God does nothing that is for your good alone and not for his glory. That the two always go hand in hand. And so God did not simply use that blind man in John chapter 9 for his glory, but he did that for his glory and for that man's good. We see this in Romans 8, 28. I will read. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And so here's the third thing I want you to write down. God uses our suffering for our good. A man was born blind 2,000 years ago. God used that for his glory and for that man's good. A girl was born blind eight years ago with cerebral palsy and autism. God uses that for his glory and for her good and for the good of her dad and her mom and her sister and brother and her grandma and everyone else who knows her for the good of her church. He always ties those two things together. We don't have to suffer so that God can be glorified and yet we just suffer. We suffer and God uses that for our good. 2 Corinthians 4, 14, or I'm second, sorry, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. This is the last scripture I'm going to give you to write down. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. For the sake of time, I'm just going to start reading. Sorry if I didn't give you time to turn there. Listen, though. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Listen to this crazy verse. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. For as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
Verse 17, again, listen. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. First of all, of, of particular noteworthiness is the fact that Paul refers to the suffering we face in this world as light and momentary affliction. Unless you be tempted to think Paul must have had an easy life. He only faced light, momentary affliction. That's not my life. Read the life of Paul in the Bible. And you might start to feel like, whoa, (laughs) he went through a lot more than I've ever dreamed of having to go through. And yet he refers to it as light, momentary affliction. That's because he is comparing it to something far greater, what he describes as an eternal weight of glory. God takes our suffering. You know, if you ever, if you ever baked a, a cake, this is a stupid example, it must be, it's getting close to lunchtime. If you've ever baked a cake, you take some ingredients that in and of themselves aren't that impressive but you put them all together, you put them in the oven, and then you got a cake. And a a good cake, there's not really a whole lot better than good cake, other than Patty's chocolate zucchini bread that, by the way, if you were at the class on Tuesday night, um, Patty should have made zucchini bread for the whole class, but she only made it for me. So you can talk to her about that afterwards. you take these ingredients, right? Paul, this, I'm frustrated that I used this example already. God takes the ingredients of our suffering and makes something great from them. Forget, forget about the image of cake because it just doesn't begin to even compare to what God is doing. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What God is saying is that if you're a believer, and if you're not, I want to invite you to become one today. If you're a Christian, and and Jesus Christ is your Lord and he is your Savior, you're going to go to heaven one day. And you're going to look back on this life, and regardless of how bad it feels right now, you're going to say, compared to what I am living in now, That was light and momentary affliction. I don't even want to compare it. Paul Paul says it's beyond all comparison. There's something far greater. I think of the worst thing that can happen to you on earth. Think about it. I don't say that lightly. I've heard of some horrible things happening to people. Heaven. Heaven will make it worth it forever. It's eternal. It won't wear out or fade or go away. It's eternal. That's what God says about suffering. So, so let me just repeat what I've tried to cover here this morning. Suffering office often blinds us to what God is doing. When that happens, we need to remind ourselves of who he is and what he has already done. And, and then... Here's what you need to remind yourself, specifically what you need to remind yourself about who he is and how he works. One, God is big enough for our suffering. 
Two, God uses our suffering for his glory. And three, God uses our suffering for our good. Now, I'm talking to Christians. If you are not a Christian today, the Bible describes that as being in rebellion against God. You, you have chosen to go the other way, away from him. And in that rebellion, you will receive limit, limited benefit from him. But God is such an awesome God that he calls out to those who have rebelled against him. And he offers his own son as a sacrifice for your sins. That's why Jesus Christ went to the cross. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He says, you come back to me and I'll take care of you. I'll forgive your sins. I'll bring you into the family. I'll count you as, as one of my own children. The Bible says we are adopted as sons and daughters. And I will give you eternal life. If you want to do that today, that's his invitation and my invitation to you. I would simply encourage you to make that known to him as we pray. Maybe a couple of, of key things that, that you should say to him. One, that you admit that you have sinned against him and that you are a sinner. Two, that you want him to forgive you of your sins and that you trust that Jesus Christ went to the cross to die for you. And then commit yourself to following him learning what it means to be a Christian and to be a part of the family of God. For the rest of you, as we pray, I, I want you to think about where you're at. Are you suffering right now? D then then look, look to the truth of Scripture, not to your own emotions, which may at this time be blinded to what God is doing. Or maybe you're not suffering, and this is training this is soldiers preparing for the battle so that when the bullets start flying, we can rely on our training. We know what to do. We're going we're to remember who God is and what he has done.